Welcome to another episode of Packy Chat. As always, I'd like to thank everybody that's been tuning in and listening to us, giving us likes on Facebook, uh, sending in comments. We appreciate uh, all the comments and ideas we have uh, been receiving. Uh, definitely have a list going, ready to uh, incorporate some of those ideas uh, as the different episodes come along. And again, everyone that's liked us on Facebook and liked us on the uh, whatever outlet you listen to us on, whether it's be iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, Google Play, whatever it is, uh, give us a like and share on that because it really helps out and goes a long way for us. And don't forget, if you haven't yet, please tell your friends, even tell your enemies, uh, listen to us, give us a shout out. Uh, we appreciate it. The more the merrier. Um, this week, uh, this episode, we're doing something a little different. We have uh, two guests this week, uh, Peter and Shifra, both uh, ecologists, uh, joining us to talk about some research and conservation, field conservation stuff that's going on and that they've done. Uh, so this is a little different than the things we've talked about in the past, but something that uh, some of the listeners here have uh, alluded to wanting to hear. So it was great that they could take the time out of their busy schedules to give us a listen. And also, one more thing, uh, we have changed the time frame that we do these. Uh, for a while, we were putting these out about once a week. All of our schedules getting busier. We are now trying to get one out a month. So we'll try for uh, at least once a month getting these out going forward. But anyways, enough listening to me. Let's uh, give it up for the conversation uh, that we had with uh, Peter and Shifra. And again, as always, thanks for listening. Yeah, and this is neat because this is an angle that we haven't taken yet. I mean, we've we've had some folks talk about, you know, we, we've talked, you know, our, if you listen to any of the podcasts, we talk, you know, we sort of covered a lot of different broad topics in this from training and all kinds of things. And we had, um, you know, reproductive biologists on here. And we, so we really haven't hit um, the conservation angle yet um, or, or really the, you know, too much of the research angle. So um, I, that's why I thought it'd be interesting for you guys to come on and talk about that. And uh, also, really, for I guess I'm making assumptions here, but for the folks that might tune into this, that that take care of elephants and zoos, how um, our worlds sort of interface, and some of the things that we can do to sort of complement each other, even help each other. And you know, one of the easy ones I brought up, of course, I'll let you guys get down to it. But as we get into the nitty gritty, is you know how we how we helped out with the personality testing and the the the, ob the object manipulation. So anyway, so at some point we can get to that and sort of talk about how our you know, what you guys do, how it might or might not interface with what we do in sort of the big picture. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you guys are doing now and, uh, yeah, a little bit about yourselves. That'd be awesome. Uh, sure. So I'm a behavioral ecologist. Uh, I study different aspects of elephant behavior. And I don't, I don't only study elephants, but it's tended to be that way. <laughs> Uh, so most of what I've done is elephant related, but really I'm interested in animal behavior questions that intersect with conservation objectives. And with elephants, I've studied different aspects of behavior and I'm interested in studying different aspects of behavior that I haven't necessarily touched on yet. But most of those in the past have been uh, social behavior. So particularly social behavior in the context of disruption. So poaching and drought and how that affects what elephants do socially. Um, their movement, and again, kind of in the context of human-dominated landscapes and, and disrupted uh, social landscapes, and behavior toward humans in different capacities. So how they how they respond toward people approaching them, um, how how different personalities might shape what they do in the landscape, and then the more recent work that I've been involved with is is sort of coming up with research programs that are going to be beneficial for conservation translocations in different ways. So what kind of behavioral questions are going to be useful for management protocols when elephants are being moved around in range countries for one reason or another. That's kind of a, the gist. So that's more the conservation translocation is more recent work that is kind of starting off now. Cool. Peter, what about you? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm by training, I'm a mammologist and landscape ecologist. When I first started out, I worked on small mammals. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, I had an opportunity, a very unique opportunity to go to, to, go to Myanmar in the, in the mid-90s. And uh, I went with some people, a guy named Chris Wimmer, who was really heavily into elephants and was fairly well-known. He's long retired since. Um, and we, we ended up uh, spending a lot of time with um, logging elephants in Myanmar, riding through the forest and uh, also trying to observe wild forests. And I just kept completely captivated. Of course, elephants are, when you're interested in landscape, so, so you know, my interest is really how, how mammals or large mammals respond to human-caused changes in the landscape and how we can understand what they need in the landscape and how they respond to these changes and how that affects their survival or conservation in the long term. And elephants are ideal for this because, you know, you talk about uh, the largest terrestrial mammal or the last largest terrestrial animal and uh, the need for space, uh, the way they respond. And then, of course, this really close um, interaction between humans and elephants on the landscape, especially in Asia, where you have this mix of elephants being like a, a beast of burden and being a religious symbol and being a huge threat to the survival of these little farmers. So it's a very complex, interesting landscape from from biology and ecology ecological perspectives but also from human and societal um, perspectives and so i got i got completely captivated by that um and um i think it, if i would describe what yeah i think for what's most interesting to me is really the fact how these large herbivores can coexist with humans and really the fact that they do much better in 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 uh, some human-influenced landscapes than in forests. They're kind of a little bit like a gigantic white-tailed deer when they're out there. They, they like it much better when there's some forest, some agriculture interspersed with forest than if there's plain forest. So it's super interesting species, fascinating and, and really useful as a, as a vehicle for, because they're a flagship, people like them. You can use them to communicate about conservation, but also they are a keystone species. They influence what happens at the landscape. So you said that they 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 do they kind of do better in areas that have uh, some agriculture. The elephants like it, but clearly the people don't like it. Yeah, but you know it's interesting, right? I mean, so if we're talking about Asian elephants, right? If you look at the, the what's presumed to be the prehistoric range of Asian elephants, which is like from Mesopotamia, you know, so so somewhere around. Israel, Lebanon, maybe even Greece and Cyprus, all the way to the Yellow River in uh, the Yangtze and China. Um, some of these were the most populated places even in prehistory. And those, that's the cradle of rice agriculture. So elephants and humans have coexisted for thousands of years in these landscapes. And potentially, elephants have done really well because of this coexistence. And yeah, I mean, there's conflict. You know, We have conflict with white-tailed deer. The Europeans have conflict with boar. You know, I think the, the big difference is you know, a white-tailed deer doesn't usually kill you when you surprise it, but an elephant can kill you. So there's, there's, it's just by virtue of its size and the way it responds, a more dangerous animal. But people, people have coexisted with elephants for a very, very long time. Yeah, it densely populated agricultural landscapes. So if you take that part of Asia, you can say that every, you know, yeah, probably every fourth or fifth person on the planet lives in that lives in that area. You know, Asia just has the biggest population, but there's also still quite a bit of um, natural habitat left. And you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's clearly population growth and the way we we build out agriculture that clearly leads to more conflict. But um, I think that, um, like with so many things, uh, some of it is just a, a question of management. So take grizzlies, for example, or black bears or wolves, right? I mean, or a mountain lion, yeah? We coexist with them in places here. And when there's an accident, people get very upset. But there clearly are ways to kind of instruct people on how to behave alongside these animals to be more safe. And I think the same could be probably said of places in, in, in Asia. There, there would be ways to really reduce that risk significantly. Yeah, I was really impressed with that when uh, my partner and I went out to Glacier a few years ago and just how much they hammer home these messages. You know, what do you do when you first get to the campsite? You know, you hang up your food. You, you know, you make sure everything's locked away. You never have food in the tent. And they make you repeat it if you're going to be camping in the backcountry. It's, um, 
Yeah, no, it's an interesting idea. I think, Peter, maybe that speaks to some of what they're doing in Myanmar with these messages in the villages of how to live with elephants and kind of appropriate behavior. Yeah. And then I think that, I mean, your work, Shifa, is really interesting there too, because not every elephant is like every elephant, right? Recognizing that there are individual differences. So, so right now when there is human-elephant conflict, all the elephants get blamed for what happens between a few individuals. And so the management doesn't target, target specific individuals because that's difficult and we can often not recognize them, but it targets the entire population. And that's probably really negative from a conservation perspective. And so understanding personalities and being able to perhaps identify them and see which elephants are more conflict prone could be a really useful tool. And Shifa, you might have some thoughts on that, I would think. Yeah, no, I, I, think, that's, I think that's exactly right. They're probably, you know, it's, it depends on the population, I'm sure, but there are, there are going to be degrees of difference in terms of whether some elephants are habitual crop raiders, or whether some of them are just kind of seasonal or, um, you know, just doing it if their friends are doing it kind of thing. Um, I actually just saw a nice presentation last week at a, at a conference uh, Nathan Hahn's work, you know that, in, in Kenya. So he's mm -hmm. looking at movement strategies of uh, of different crop riding elephants and seeing that there are actually these different, you know, you can kind of categorize them into different types. So you have these habitual crop raiders, you have these seasonal crop raiders, you have those that'll do it if their friends are doing it. Um, but I think, yeah, personality is a big part of it. So that's one that we're really interested in is, is can you predict that based on some other way to, to measure personality? Um, and, you know, you know, the personality literature is getting into neophobia, like how, how afraid are they of something new that they see on the landscape. And so the hypothesis there is that there's a connection between if you're, if you're seeing something novel that's, that's re related to humans and whether you're willing to take a risk in front of it, if, there's, if the reward is potentially high. Um, and so, and I think there are applications there in a few different ways. So one, like Peter's talking about where the whole, population gets blamed kind of thing. But when you have limited conservation resources, for example, if you're going to deploy a collar, uh, are you, you know, can you target that more carefully to the individuals that are going to cause the greatest harm so that you can set up some kind of geofence where you, you know, you know if that individual is coming in and it's more effective if you're targeting the elephants that are most likely to cause that harm. Uh, it's also really useful in a, in like a reintroduction context or, or some other translocation context where you, you know that some animals might be habitual crop raiders, and so maybe those are, are not the best animals to translocate to, to agricultural areas. Um, and so, yeah, so so I can talk about some of the work that Satish has done, if that's that's what you're referring to, right? Absolutely, and, and yeah, and, and you know, more than that too is, like I said, is, is and it's super interesting work and super important. Obviously, we all are sort of aware of the challenges of elephants in, in, in human conflict and all that kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've not, I've not ever heard them um, compared to like a white-tailed deer and some of the same challenges, obviously. And as we compare and contrast them, even if we talk about bears or something like that, you know, it's interesting, you know, we deal with it in the zoo all the time is that everything, everything, you know, reasonably edible up to five feet high in the zoo is gone, you know, and it's an inconvenience and things. And we try to work around it. Or if you have, you know, bears in your area and you, you know, you get your trash broken into or your bird feet are knocked down, you know, that's one thing. But when we talk about the, the way the elephant social structure is and herd structure is and, and the, the learned behaviors and, you know, sort of the culture of, of animals and individuals, you know, in one evening, you could cause, you know, the, basically the, the demise of a, <laughs> of a family or a village, right? So it's, so it's interesting how that, how that all sort of, um, just hearing it, kind of hearing it with fresh ears for the first time that way. But, you know, when you talk about Satish's work and, and what we do, uh, sort of the, the elephant care perspective, it's interesting. And, and I think everybody always wants to know how, you know, what, what goes on in, in the type of work that you guys are doing in range countries and things, but also how, you know, uh, the folks working in zoos can actually either help contribute or share some of our experiences or share our elephants or whatever. And, you know, in my, in my time, you know, we've done some things as easy as, you know, um, at one point, one of our staff members was doing um, um, elephant sterilization in Africa. And he, you know, he piloted, uh, he designed and piloted sort of a, a workstation that hung on the elephant while they were 
um, understanding sedation and, and we piloted it on our elephant. So, you know, it's sort of a stretch and, you know, we tried it out on the elephants and see if it worked and made tweaks and everything for, you know, good work that was going on in the field. Um, and that felt good, you know, be, when you have a direct, a direct uh, link to, to, you know, to wild elephants and helping, you know, elephants in range countries. But when you talk about Satish's work, I know we did a little bit of, of work with that at, at, uh, at the zoo as well. So yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear about that or talk about that here for everybody. And we can talk about, you know, maybe what we did to help with that and, or, you know, at least shed some light on some of the techniques or what was eventually done or will be done. Yeah, definitely. So I, I agree. I think, you know, I think the opportunity to sort of, you know, trial some of the techniques or some of the tools that are going to be used in the field is, is a really invaluable opportunity um, with some of these herds in North America. Uh, and so Satish is a, he's a graduate student who I jointly advise and his research is focused on looking, measuring personality using these novel object tests. So he's got these uh, baited puzzle boxes and just seeing what elephants do with them. So giving each one an opportunity to interact and, and measuring different aspects of that. So, you know, when do they approach and what kind of behavior are they exhibiting and are they interested at all and are they even getting their rewards and was there some, you know, hesitancy to, to approach in the first place. Um, and, and so he's, he has these puzzle boxes and what's really cool in Myanmar is that he's, he, he also has uh, tracking collars so he can look at what these elephants are doing at night and look at that in terms of uh, their crop riding behavior or their uh, approach to human areas and see if there's any correlation between how they respond to these no novel object tests and what they're actually doing on a natural landscape. So the, these, I think these novel object tests are really, they're a really interesting tool for animal behavior research in that they've shown us in a, a range of species that there are these different personalities. So you have some animals that are really excited by something that's, that's new and interesting, and you have some that take a more risk-averse kind of approach. Um, but, but when you compare it with what's going on in the landscape and, and whether that's correlated with anything that they're doing that could actually cause them harm or cause harm to people, um, I think that, that makes it pretty cool. So Satish, the, Satish's first step for his master's work was to go to the National Zoo and work with the elephants there and, and give them this, this puzzle box. And um, I think that uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to discuss his results before he's had a chance to, to put them out there. But um, I think the fact that those elephants are very exposed to enrichment made their, their results quite different from, from what um, the elephants in Myanmar were doing. But uh, so I think, I think he learned that he had to make structures a lot stronger <laughs> before taking it to the field. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that was, that was one, one way that, that we're looking at that question of personality and these inter-individual di differences. Um, and I also, so there was also just a paper that came out that Lisa Barrett led that was looking at very, very similar idea, but uh, a cognitive tasks. And, and, but it was looking at whether they can do that sort of, uh, what's that task called where they, they need to reach food by putting, taking water and putting it into a tube. And so you have to kind of piece it together that water is your tool here. You have to use it in a different context and, uh, and like get it to, to float your marshmallow up to where you can reach it kind of thing. And so I think she did that at the national zoo and, and there was another zoo involved as well. Um, yeah, it was interesting. And I think there was only one elephant who solved it. Um, which is interesting because I know they've done it. I think they've done it with um, corvids and uh, they were able to solve it. So, you know, every time we say elephants are smart, I always say, yeah, some of them are very smart. <laughs> some of them. Yeah. Okay. We'll see that they have something in there, but it's not quite the same uh, how they, how to utilize the tool, whether it's sharp or not. Um, but yeah, it was interesting because one, you know, it was kind of interesting that there was only one elephant who, who was able to solve it. She partially solved it the first time and then, um, I think she, she finished it off the second time, but that was, that was pretty interesting. But again, it's interesting to, and I think that was, that was obviously just, um, zoo elephants, but, um, and I'm not sure how that would work <laughs> in, uh, in a semi-wild or other situation, but, um, yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's always interesting, you know, regardless of how long we've been working around elephants, it's, um, at least me, I'm, I'm routinely surprised and caught off guard by some of the things that, 
that we see and learn, um, you know, on a regular basis that happens. Just when you think you, you got it figured out, they, they surprise you again. Yeah, and I, yeah, I mean, I think that that problem solving idea is a really interesting one when we think about conflict because it's, uh, we tend not to think about individual abilities and what they're able to do, but a lot of these deterrents are kind of, they're essentially puzzles to figure out. Uh, and are you going to have variation among the individuals in your population and how they can solve or get around that puzzle? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. We, um, we refer many times to different personalities of the elephants, and anybody who works with elephants can definitely attest to different personalities. I'm curious to know in your, both your works, when it comes to elephants interacting with human populations, do you see any behavior differences either between rage countries, between different areas, or even between the different species of elephants and how they interact with um, local people? That's a really good question. I think Brilli wants to know if African elephants are smarter than Asian elephants. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel out, I feel like I'm a little you know, outgunned um, here with the Asian elephant population here. But uh, yeah, if you don't want to say that, then we'll pass on that question because if you're going to just talk about Asian elephants. No, no, Schiffer's Sh representing African elephants. Don't okay, worry. good. Yeah. yeah, I studied um, African elephants longer than I studied Asian Oh, good, because <laughs> there, there might not be a difference, you know. Um, I'm just curious if, if you've noticed any differences in how they interact with their, with their populations in the range countries. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think that's a great question. It's probably very population specific just in terms of what they're exposed to. So like where I, where I started research in Samburu in Northern Kenya, the elephants in the national reserve there are, have very long been exposed to tourists and research vehicles and they're super, super calm around cars. And you can just, and you know, you know if there's an elephant that just that day came into the park because they act completely different. Uh, from everyone else that's there to the ones that are spending a lot of time in there you could just drive right up to them and you know they don't even they don't even look around they're totally they're totally fine with it and then the minute you get out of the car and you're on foot they respond really differently because threats to them and that system comes from people on foot um, and so I think it has a it probably just has a lot to do with what they what they've sort of the range of their experiences and I think with elephants too you have to consider the their social learning too. And so even if it's not the individual that's learned that is like, what are the, you know, what are the sort of principles about what risk is that get passed through that population through socially learned information? I'm sure, Peter, I'm sure you've got. Well, you know, I think this is, this is, it's a really interesting question. So, so, you know, if we're talking about smart or intelligent, right, it's such a human guided and i'm not a behavioral ecologist or i don't know anything about cognitive science but to me it always strikes me it's it's our perception of that what would that mean if you translate it into nature right it would mean an, a really strong ability to adapt and respond to challenges in your environment that somehow gives you the advantage to survive right I, I think that's how I would look at it. And, and you know, the environments are quite different for a African and Asian elephants. And I, and I think on top of that, I think it's fair to say that Asian elephants probably have been much more exposed to humans than African elephants as populations. So I don't know how you can really compare them, but, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, we, we do have this history of trained elephants that goes back thousands of years in Asia. I don't know that that's any indication of them being smarter, but perhaps they are, you know, perhaps there's an, there's an easier link for communication there that has kind of you know, developed over time. Um, I don't know. I, honestly, I mean, I, I would stay away from any question of which one of them is smarter. Obviously, they have, I think what's fascinating about elephants is their incredible ability to adapt. I mean, it's just the plasticity of their behavior, the diversity of habitats they can live in, the yeah, the persistence with which they kind of stick with a problem sometimes and then kind of eventually crack it. I mean, it, it's interesting stuff. I think it's, and we're really just scratching the surface probably, right? I mean, it, it's, some of these observations that we can do in, or these experiments we do in captivity, we can obviously not do in the wild. I mean, our, especially um, behavioral observations on, on Asian elephants have been very, very difficult in this much less systematic work available on a Asian elephants than on African elephants. So I don't know. You know it, <laughs> I, 
I don't think it's possible to say. I'm also not sure it matters. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it's totally about how adapted you are for your environment. And it goes back to some of these behavioral tests that we do. Like these are tests that a lot of these tests are adapted from primate studies and I think said at Corvid studies. And an elephant experiences the world, you know, mostly through smell and, and also through audition. And, and so there, you know, there have been, there have been calls to adapt these tests to better understand how they experience their environments. And so, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to test how smart an animal is, then you have to gear it to how they experience the world and, and how they move around in that world. There's a couple of things you guys touched on before that's kind of intriguing. You mentioned about, um, we talked about human elephant conflict and cooperating. And then Peter mentioned, you know, it's interesting to see how elephants kind of crack the puzzle. Um, in your experiences, or you know, we've all heard about populations trying to come up with different methods to try to mitigate elephant-human conflicts. Do you guys have any um, kind of really neat stories or interesting stories of some of the best defensive defenses that people have come across or came up with to try to mitigate elephant-human conflicts and how those elephant, elephants have kind of, you know, beat them or have, you know, cracked that puzzle. And there's always, you know, Peter mentioned their incredible ability to adapt. So we have humans adapting to a chess game with elephants. They make one move, we make another one. Um, and we've heard things about, you know, live bee fences and people doing fireworks and all that stuff. Is there any stories that you um, know about or witness that you can share with us to talk about that chess game between humans and elephants when it comes to mitigating elephant-human conflicts. Yeah, no, I'm sure they're a good example. I haven't studied conflict that long, so I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I'm much of an authority on this. But I do, I, you know, you hear these anecdotes about how they figure out electric fences by kind of testing them, or you know, pushing someone else into them, or um, figuring out if they're actually electrified. I'm sure with the beehive fences, they have ways to figure out whether they're actually occupied. But I don't know. I mean, that'd be one to ask Lucy King. Yeah. So, so you know, I think elephants and dolphins are very similar in that people always want to come up with this, uh, <laughs> this kind of story how elephants kind of, you know, are special and figure something out. Think about it like uh, with your um, squirrel-safe bird feeder, right? There's no such thing, right? I mean, it's, there are some bird feeders that are a little better than others. But depending on your squirrel and how many squirrels you have, they'll figure it out. And I think that's how I would think. You know, I mean, decision makers and managers would love for there for there to be a, a, a silver bullet, right? The the one solution that works always, and and it's just not that way. I think the truth is that uh, with elephants, just like with white-tailed deer, say it again, or other things, it's all about vigilance. It's all about you constantly have to stay with it. You constantly have to manage it. You have to accept that there are going to be some losses. You have to accept the risks, but you have to be consistent and do what you, what you can do. And so ultimately, I think it comes down to having, having systems that are operational that you can maintain. And, you know, there's a lot of, I think what I've seen so far that I think is the most effective are temporary seasonal low cost electric fences. So these are fences you put up around your field, you maintain them while your harvest is coming in and then you take them down again and elephants can roam. They're inexpensive, they're easy to maintain, they're fairly effective. And if an elephant runs through, you don't have huge damage, you just put it back up again. So I think, you know, it's, it's much more about the economics and the practicality and the management than, you know, trying to figure out how we trick elephants once and for all, right? Because it's not going to happen. Uh, and, uh, I think that's, that's how I would look at it. People don't like this kind of thing. You know, when I say elephants are like white-tailed deer, there's plenty of elephant researchers that will shriek and a lot of people because it's not, you know, we want to have this picture of these elephants that love the wild jungle and they only live in that forest. And, uh, and same with human-elephant conflict. We, you know, we want to figure out this one solution that kind of does it. Take these bee fences, right? How many beehives can a single farmer have? Bees don't fly at night usually. Most crop rating happens at night. You know, you, <laughs> it's a great story. It makes it into science. It's very sexy. It's, but is it actually operational? And can, you, can every farmer actually do something like this? You know, it's just, it, 
just strikes me as extremely unrealistic and impractical. So, but it's not. Peter, I, think you t- I think you touched on a, an important point with those temporary offenses because I think habituation is a big problem too. Right. It's like you give them more and more and more and more of an opportunity to figure it out, then they're going to figure it out. But I, if it's I something think, that changes all the time. Yeah, most elephant guys that seriously work on human elephant conflict, they will tell you there's nothing, nothing worse than a permanent fence put up by the government and not maintained because it teaches elephants how to break fences and it becomes completely ineffective. And then you have these, uh, they do, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, these permanent fences, sometimes they fence elephants into the agricultural areas so they can't come out again. And so I think it's, you know, it, it, I think it's like here too. I mean, you know, when, when you talk to farmers here, the solutions have to be something that a farmer can implement without a huge cost and that are relatively effective. They don't have to be effective 100% of the time. Yeah. I think the bigger issue, I, I do, I, I think we have to say that the bigger issue is, you know, the crop rating is bad, but what's really bad is when people get killed and then there's retaliation against elephants. You know, that's, that's really the first thing we have to eliminate. How do we keep people safe and how do we keep elephants safe? And, you know, and, and I think zoos actually play an enormous role in communicating about some of these things. You know, when sometimes when I talk to people here in the U.S., they say, oh, these, how can they kill all these elephants in Asia? In, in the crop rating and, and, you know, and I always give the example of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is the size of West Virginia. It has uh, 20 million people. West Virginia has 2 million people. I know maybe you've heard me talk about this before, but uh, in Sri Lanka, there are 60 to 100 people that get killed by elephants. Imagine we had 60 to 100 people getting killed by puma or, or bear anywhere in any state in the U.S., yeah, uh, that's, it, people would not stand for it. I mean, we would be killing these animals. Yeah. And so the tolerance for conflict and, and, and really severe consequences is much higher in Asia than it is in, in the U.S. or in Europe or in many countries that we know. And uh, we, we kind of have to actually acknowledge that and really try to think about how can we, how can we support them in this really, it's a challenging task. You know? How do you save elephants and keep people safe? That's not an easy one. I mean, a lot of it is about values. You know, they, they actually, val- elephants are valued throughout Asia. Not everywhere. I mean, there's, there, are, there are certainly issues. But, uh, you know, if we would value our wildlife the same way here in the U.S., we would be much further along in many ways. Um, you know, so it's, and I do think, I mean, for me, you know, I mean, when I became a wildlife biologist, I didn't imagine working for a zoo. But, but you know, I see people coming to the zoo and being, making this personal connection with our animals. Um, and I think that personal collection is a, is a key opponent for, for really motivating people to care and to do something about it. But, uh, you know, I, the one thing that I would add is that I, so the, the work that Schiffer is doing in my mind is actually, it's, it's the kind of the front line or the cutting edge of, what we need to do in terms of uh, scientific research to really crack some of these problems. And it stems out of, uh, uh, so, so, you know, the ecologists are a bit weird. We always try to kind of come up with an average response to a change or to behavior. So we look at lots of animals, the more, the better. And then we kind of calculate the average response. And then that's what we're going to use to inform management. But as you know, average doesn't really work so well with elephants because there's, there's so much variation. And it turns out that's true for many species. And really, you know, in, in some ways, we need to have a much better understanding for, in general, how behavior interacts with all of these, these kinds of things, but also how do we fit in these, this variation in individual behaviors? Can we identify personalities? And what importance do these personalities have for the ecological patterns that we see out there? And... Shifa, you should talk about this. I should stop because I'm, yeah, I, I don't really know that much about it. But to my, from a conservation perspective, I think this is a really important piece we need in the puzzle that we don't have right now. No, I, yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think that's a really, it's a really important point is because, you know, you, when you see, you see it in the literature is variation around a mean. So this is kind of, you know, where, where everyone's kind of supposed to fall, but then of course you have variation. It's just treated as, as variation, but there may actually be good reason. That may be a strategy. It's like, you know, 
the analogy is um, like sexual strategies in frogs, for example, where you have the really loud croakers and then you have the sneaker males who just kind of hang out around the loud croakers. Um, and so, you know, you may think, well, why would, why would, why wouldn't all elephants be of a particular personality type that's really adaptive? And the idea is that you, you know, in some cases, some of them are going to do better and other cases, others are going to do better. And there's a really cool study with swift fox that uh, I think is really illustrative where there's, so they're reintroducing swift fox and they find, they found that the bolder swift fox, so they did these similar kind of novel object tests to measure boldness. And they found that the bolder swift foxes were less likely to survive once they were translocated. But then the bold ones did better in, in other conditions down the road. So if they were able to survive that initial period, they, they were able to do something else. I forget the exact details of the study, but it's this idea that it's this trade-off of strategy. So in some cases, some are going to do better. In other cases, others are going to do better. And I think especially when you're thinking about these kind of translocations or these reintroduction projects, when you think about, well, the mix really matters. So what if you think about measuring the different personalities of individuals but then thinking about everyone in a group together. So if you have a mix of strategies, does that create kind of a different outcome of behaviors, especially in a species that learns socially, as compared to if you had a group composed of, you know, one personality type, for example, that would all respond the same way. I think it's a really, it's really useful to think about this and just in terms of how animals would respond differently, depending on their sort of inherent personalities. Well, it's funny because it's, you know, it's not dissimilar to what we do, you know, every day when, when, as we manage these animals in, in our artificial environments or, you know, obviously there's plenty of human elephant, I wouldn't say conflict, but sometimes, um, you know, how, how we manage them and, and the, how the personalities come into play and what it means to, you know, quote unquote, translocate elephants into your group or out of your group and what's the effect on the group and how is the is it, is it, you know, successful or not successful? And then, you know, obviously each of the, you know, we all can tell you millions of stories about individual personalities and how that factors into how we, how we manage them or strategies we use or strategies we avoid with them. Um, but it's interesting too, because, you know, you bring up other interesting things and, you know, it's, it's, it's wise to not anthropomorphize, but it's also difficult sometimes when you talk about the bold ones and how they do. And, you know, it's not dissimilar to, um, you know, because of the, I guess, social structure and the success of the species and, and the challenges they face is, you know, you look at the human race and we have different personalities and different levels of intelligence and, and frankly, success and how they, how do they manage their environment. Um, so it's an interesting thing just to ponder anyway, but, but, but taking it back to what we do, I mean, it's, it's, it's on a different scale, I guess, or a different sort of compartment, how we, how we do it. But that, those are literally the, the discussions and the, the challenges and the strategies that we're trying to do all the time as we talk about the management of individuals or individuals within a group and how, they, how well they do or um, how, how maybe dysfunctional it might be at times or in certain situations. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating point because it's like, it's so obvious, right? Of course, their personalities. Anyone who's owned a pet knows that. <laughs> you know, in other species, you have different personalities. But like a lot of this early literature on animal behavior would really try to justify that idea, you know, that like, oh, it's been quantified, it's been quantified. I'm sure anyone in husbandry could have told you that <laughs> really easily. <laughs> you know, they're all really different from me. You could predict what this elephant is going to do compared to what this elephant is going to do when you put something new in front of them. But yeah, I, I think in ecology, it's taken us a while to catch up. Well, it's interesting too, because I, I often say this to, to newer folks or, you know, in different contexts and conversation is that, you know, we see, you know, we factor in personalities every single day and, you know, wh whether or not you're dealing with, um, you know, your elephants or like for most of us, we are somehow, you know, managers of, of, or supervisors of other, other, you know, employees, I guess. And the way you sort of subliminally deal with, them like I couldn't say to you hey you know if you ask me lion can you describe the personalities of these you know three elephants sure I could do that I guess but the way I um the way I interact with them and sort of the 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 tough to quantify behaviors or the subliminal things that I might do or not do based on what I what I know about that and I say no in air quotes is more of my you know I guess the experience I have with those individuals is how I might deal with them and you might see somebody who's you know 
well-versed in, in elephant behavior deal very differently between a couple of animals. And it's not even something that it becomes more natural and, and um, you know, less, less conscious of a, of a process. You just sort of, and it's, again, you know, going back to people is how you deal with your, either your kids or your coworkers or whatever, you know, based on your experiences and what you know about them is how you, how you conduct yourself and the, the strategies and techniques you use in, in um, interacting with them. So it's, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, you know, it's interesting because you guys do it in a different um, situation and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, you know, at a distance um, or at least a, a larger distance than we, we typically are used to uh, in interfacing with our, our animals. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. You know, I think that uh, what you describe is also a bit the tension between welfare and conservation. You know, so in conservation, you know, I mean, ultimately, I think we have to come up with recommendations for wildlife managers, natural resource managers, policy makers. What is the strategy out there to save or have as many elephants as possible, right? And so the focus is the population. And in your case, the focus is really the individual. And those things are not the same. You know, sometimes what's good for the individual may not be good for the population, or what's good for the population is not so good for the individual. The interesting piece, I think, is that we're seeing some tendencies now where really trying to figure out how does how can you integrate welfare better into conservation and vice versa? You know, how can you can you think about of these these things in the context? And I think the approach to really think about how um, how we can identify behavioral types and what that means for the population to have these behavioral types and how that affects populations or conservations. That's a really interesting way to integrate it. And it, I think it's very promising. I think we, we will learn a lot from it and it will change the way we manage wildlife in, in situ, but it's probably also going to change how we manage wildlife in, in captivity, you know, in kind of thinking of new strategies to really adapt to some of these things. I, I wish I had a good example for it yet. I mean, I think we're, you know, I think so we have these early beginnings, like in what, what Schiffer so well describes and the research that Satish does. But I think there's probably going to be much more to come in the future. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I, I sort of thought, you know, one day we were having a meeting and I, and I was thinking about something and, you know, and I said, I said this phrase, I guess you can call it. And, you know, some people don't really agree with it. And I'm not sure it's a, it's a great representation of a, total picture. But, you know, for us that work in zoos and, 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 you know, interface with folks like you, and obviously we have a, we have a mission that, that crosses a lot of boundaries, but um, you know, for us, you know, the husbandry folks that take care of these animals every day, I always say, you know, saving species for us starts with specimens, right? So what we do every day, we walk in, we walk into our place of work and our focus is on those individuals knowing that there's a, there's a bigger picture, but really for us, you know, and we always have the, you know, the um, sort of the bigger picture to think about as far as, you know, breeding and specimens to species, I guess, how you, I, hopefully you get the gist of it. It's, it's by no means a complete, it's by no means a complete um, statement on, on what we do or why we do it or anything like that. But it's just a different um, way to view things when we talk about the bigger picture. And I don't know if I got into this, but individual wealth, welfare versus um, bigger pictures and like sustainability and um, you know, risk and, and uh, reward for, you know, breeding animals and the risks that go along with it and, and how we do things. So anyway, um, going down a rabbit hole here. But anyway, it's just sort of an interesting concept, again, to parallel the challenges that you guys face versus some of the things that we face every day. And I guess what we what we concentrate on, the stuff that's in our face. But, you know, I mean, so, so the challenge is a little bit, and I think this is where we have to take zoos a bit more um, into the responsibility, right? You know, there's a way more money in zoos than there is in wild elephant conservation. You know, so if you, if you look at resources available to develop elephant conservation in situ, there's a few grants programs, there's a few foundations, there's a couple of poor governments that don't have the resources to do much. You know, if I, if I you know, I would estimate the grants program that are available dedicated to Asian elephant, they run somewhere, at best, they run somewhere between 750000 to a million a year for all of the world. And that's nothing. Nope. Absolutely nothing. You know, when you think at what an elephant exhibit can cost, 
and zoos have the ability to raise that money. And I'm not saying that that money would automatically be available for conservation. I'm not saying that's wrong because I think that's like comparing apples and oranges, but I do think as zoos, we probably should have a capacity to support more of that work than we do right now. And, uh, it's, and, and it's difficult for zoos, like you take this crisis with COVID right now, right? I mean, you, you have to take care of these animals, you know, these costs are there, that has to happen. And that's not, you know, that's not negotiable. I mean, you, you, know, you wouldn't have a zoo if you, if you don't do this. So how do you, how do, you do that, you know? That, um, it's, a, it's a challenge, I think. I think a lot of zoos also struggle with this. I think they would like to do more, but they have all these obligations they have to fill first and then comes, comes that conservation stuff, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Peter. And, and one of the other things is how do we how do we do a, how do we do a better job, sort of knitting these concepts together? You know, I was joking with before we started the call that, you know, I I've, I've seen you know he lives in in Texas and I I saw him, you know, more frequently than I see you. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I yeah, was thinking so about do, that too. Yeah. So how do we? You know, how do we, you? You know, you're. You know what? You're down sixty six away. I mean, yeah. Right. So anyway, it's one of those things where you know how can we? You know, regardless of the of the even the the funds, which I agree with um, to a large extent. But again, you know, we. Uh, my priority when I walk in during the day is you know I I have nothing but respect and and obviously hold see a lot of importance in obviously wild elephant conservation. But I walk in and look at the five you know, the five animals that we have to take right. care of, right? So we know that that requires a certain level of resources and stuff, but how can we do better, you know, sort of weaving in to the fabric of what we do and the fabric of what you do and, and make it, make it, I guess, more, a little bit more cohesive for two reasons. One, so that there might be an opportunity to, to cooperate more and whatever that cooperate and who knows what, what way, but also as we invite folks to come out to our institution and see what we do, you know, we try hard to say, yeah, 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 and there's conservation and the range countries and yeah, 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 and do this and do that and inspire people. But if we had a if we had a better way to demonstrate that, um, when people do come out and visit us, that would be, I think that would go a long way. I don't know the answer to that right now because you know we we try to do it, we teach it, we preach it, we do the keeper demos, we do all that stuff. But I just wish there was a a more impactful way we could intertwine the two and, and send a better message and, you know, get people more inspired and I guess demonstrate it a little bit better. Yeah. But you know, I, it's, it's really interesting because it's the same for me, right? So I get into the office in the morning and I get going with all the stuff that I'm doing and, you know, and that doesn't really encompass any captive management or hardly any captive management. Right. So there's no, there isn't a real, there isn't a strong link for me that, you know, where I, I, I mean, you know, I'd have to decide, am I going to spend this time on writing a proposal to get more money to do what we need to do? Or am I going to go downtown to this? You know, I mean, it comes down to those kinds of things, right? I think overall, we're not doing badly. I mean, you know, I think that um, I was really happy when we originally designed the elephant exhibit because we had long discussions about the messaging. And at the time, you know, our exhibit people, they were always saying, oh, you can't do any negative messaging. You can't say elephants are going extinct, and, and I'm going like, well, how can we, <laughs> how can we not say elephants are going extinct, right? I mean, okay, so maybe we have to add a hopeful message: elephants are going extinct, but you can do something about it, or you know. But and it it happened. I mean, I think we we really did did okay with the messaging. Uh, you know, I think we just have to keep at it. Uh, you know, it's. But I would love for to hear what Shifra thinks about this because Shifra is much newer to the zoo world. <laughs> than any of us. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that. <laughs> I'm very new to the zoo world, so I don't, yeah, I don't quite, I'm not as familiar, I guess, with the, with the intersection there. But I, I think in coming to the zoo world, I, I have a much greater appreciation for the fact that it's a, you've got, a, that it's a resource, essentially. It's a platform to talk about what's going on in range countries. And I think that, I think we probably could be doing that better. I think what's challenging is that the way our projects work, they're so, they're so focused on the life of a grant. And so, you know, is the, whatever team it takes to put together a really nice exhibit about a particular project, is that project going to be something that's lasting for 10 years or, 
you know, how can you sort of weave it together to discuss the, the work that others at that zoo are doing in range countries with, you know, how, how the elephants here in DC are helping with that. If those aren't, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's challenging. It's because it's a lot of resources. It's a lot of resources that have to go into that kind of messaging too. Yeah. I mean, and I'm all for the messaging part, you know, and I think we do a, a, an adequate job of the messaging. I just wish there was a more impactful, impactful way. So to your point about, you know, whether a project lasts for X amount of years, it's just, how do we, how could we in real time incorporate any project, regardless of whether one has sort of expired or run its course and we start a new one, how can we continue to, to put that into our exhibit um, in a, in a, you know, in a better way, not, you know, not that we would exclude the messaging and the signage and all that kind of stuff, but a real, I mean, with all the technology that we have today, and I mean, just the fact that we're all able to sit on this call and do this from, you know, four corners of the, well, three corners of the United States, um, how can we do something like that um, in real time, whether it's leaning on, you know, technology or what have you to incorporate that into our, into our zoo situation so that we can you know do a better job telling the stories or demonstrating what's happening or making impactful statements or or experiences to to help people and to get that message across i you know i'm a firm believer that in order to do you know what our mission is set out to do which is inspire people and and promote conservation and all those things educate um i think we have to push the envelope and for me sometimes that means turning the dial back on the clock um some of the things that you know, we, we, we as an industry don't do anymore um, are some of the things that we probably were most inspired by when we were young that made us gravitate towards this field or elephants. Um, you know, I can tell you, I can, I can remember almost the entire first elephant ride I ever took um, at, the, um, at the fair, you know, and, uh, and what that meant. Um, and granted, you know, and that's fallen out of fashion. I'm not I'm not proposing that we do that again in zoos. What I'm proposing is that, you know, we, we use those um, experiences that we know are impactful and sort of burned into your memory and, and inspire you one way or the other, even if it's just, you know, to keep um, something in your brain that otherwise would have gone by the wayside. How do we do that with technology, with the live animal experience and with, you know, people like the five of us on this call in order to do impactful things and demonstrate what, what our goals are, what our mission is and the actual work that's happening. Cause it's, you know, it all sounds good and you can go to, you know, largely you can go to, you know, five institutions in a day and you'll probably see some of the same text on signs and some of the same messaging and things, but you know, there's, there's certain institutions that have certain opportunities, um, unique opportunities that if they could find it or we could find a better way to share that, and expose people to that, I think it would go a long way. I, again, I don't know what the answers are. I'm just, I'm just wondering how to push the envelope so that we all can still stay in our lanes and, 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 you know, meet and face our, our priorities and, and get those done, but also um, take the other stuff to another level, I guess. So all that stuff is great, but the landscape has changed and it's going to change even more with what's going on right now. I mean, a lot of zoos don't have the funds to even operate. And what's the first thing that's going to get cut, you know, after, after travel, then it's going to be research and conservation stuff, which is, is horrible because that's going to have such a huge impact on our mission. But that's, that's the first thing that I think this is, the zoos are going to start to have to cut. And someone already said it earlier, we have to take care of the animals that we have. So, you know, what does that look like in a year, five years, 10 years from now is who knows? Doesn't look great for career prospects and conservation research. Well, it's you know things are hard, and I think once once things get back to normal, so some of the stuff that I'm talking about is like, wouldn't it be great, you know, instead of having a keeper demo where we, you know, do I mean not to say we shouldn't do them, but you know the the sort of run of the mill keeper demo. Maybe there's a point in time where you know if like Peter or Schiffer, if if you guys are traveling or doing something or. Um, in a, you know, in a range country, we, we have like a, you know, this, a zoom call where you can talk to somebody who is in the field and you could have, you know, say, Oh, look, there's elephants behind you or wild elephants. And you can talk about what you're doing. Like, that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. It's a, it creates a direct link between where you're standing in a zoo in front of those elephants to where somebody else is standing in front of elephants someplace else on the world. And to see 
how that's there's a real link and real support going on. You know what I mean? So, you know, and, and, and you know, obviously it, there's some challenges there, but it, I think that would be a really cool experience. Not that it's not a cool experience to talk to the folks that take care of the animals at the zoo. I, I totally get the value in that. But if you could sort of diversify a little bit like the experiences and, and share some real life stuff, um, you know, like, you know, we have, you know, animal webcams and people are up at all hours of the night doing those things. I mean, what if we had, you know, obviously with time change and, you know, time zones and everything, it could be challenging or, or complicated. But anyway, to create a real link between an institution, the institution you chose to visit and spend a few bucks at buy a Coke and a Panda plush or something, and the work that we're supporting institution wide in other parts of the world. I think there's a, I think there's a way to, to do that. Um, that would be relatively low cost and, and I think impactful. I, I really like that idea. I, th I agree. I think all you really need is a screen. And I, just thinking about the logistical nightmare of connecting from the places where we do field work, but you could do like a little, I don't know, come back to your hotel room and like record a little journal of, of the day or something like that, mm -hmm. um, that could play over the week or, or, or whatever. Um, and include some pictures from the field or something like that. I, that's, that'd be relatively simple to do. All I need is a screen. Um, and I think maybe, maybe we just need to be touching base more often to know what the other teams are doing. I agree with both of those things. And, and perhaps also, you know, the tag could play a little bit of a role. I mean, so if, if one zoo does this, it'd be great if it could be shared and the other zoos could participate, right? I mean, you know, if, if we're creating a program at our zoo, why not make it available and share it with anyone else that wants to participate, right? It doesn't have to be, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunities. I think it just really requires a bit of a critical mass to, to bring these things together. It is a small world and I think it's fantastic. I mean, these linkages exist and we can all share them and really, you know, I, I mean, it's it's about educating and it's about joining, working together to kind of raise the whole, whole bar. So that'd be cool. Yeah, and I, I agree. And, you know, and, and, and I am a hundred percent in favor of all that to me though, how do we do it for the people that don't, you know, that don't read the signs or will never get that message. And we know that that's a significant amount of people who visit our institutions. There's no question about that. How do we, how do we change the calculus a little bit and, and create that experience? That's, that's kind of where I'm going with it. And I think there's opportunities to do that. Obviously, you know, we have, um, I mean, even to just do something, you know, live from, you know, from, from Front Royal, right? Uh, same time zone. Hopefully you guys have <laughs> relatively good connectivity out there. We do. We have fantastic Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah and, uh, and I always say, Peter, you have an accent, so you have implied credibility already. So <laughs> that's how it goes. So. I so I think we can you know, even start doing that, right? And uh, you yeah. could stand with the, uh, who knows, right? Another species that we don't have, the, you know, mountain zebras or something or whatever, whatever it is. I mean, I think there's other things that we can do to help with that. But there's no question that, you know, everybody wants to know how it connects to the wild and range countries and animals in the wild and, and all those kinds of things. How, do, how, does my, how does my decision to come to the zoo or how does this institution make a difference or does it make a difference? Or are you just sort of blowing smoke? How do we, how do we demonstrate and walk the walk that we're, you know, that we're talking. Yeah. I do yeah, I'm not sure if even when we, you know, when we publish a paper, we can just distill it down. I have to do it anyway for Peter's monthly, uh, you know, summary highlights. <laughs> you know, what are the, what are the key points of the paper that you publish? And is that something that we could put up on a screen like researchers at this institution recently discovered X and Y, and this is how it relates to elephant conservation. I don't know if doing that now, but. When it comes to your, your funding, you know, we know zoos um, do contribute some conservation dollars. You talked about grants. What are the main, other main sources for funding? Um, is, it, is it federal government? Is it um, local governments? You know, besides zoos, since I can't, so can't independently support all elephant conversation, um, conservation, you know, who are you kind of hitting up for this funding? So there's, um, there's the Fish and Wildlife Service that has an Asian Elephant Fund, and AZA plays quite a role in maintaining that. That's probably the largest grants program that's out there. And, but there's relatively small grants. They're about $50,000 a year. That In Asia, that gets you pretty far, but you know, it's, it's a lot of work to get that money. You know, 
in the in the past 10 years i would say from our perspective private donors were the best source of funding mm -hmm. i mean really using the zoo and scbi and our base to really go out to private donors and have them support research and conservation and mm -hmm. i think that out, that easily outruns any grant money that we can get it's, you know it's getting tough right now and that goes up and down but elephants are one of the species where it's relatively easy to you know, find people that are that are just really interested and just really want to support it. Um, you know, that's not true for all species. Is it, um, we're fortunate enough to come across money to study elephants. Is there like a long line of elephant researchers that have to do a Royal Rumble to try to, you know, get this funding? Um, is it very competitive? There's, because I can imagine that they're so charismatic species, there must be a, lots of people that want to study them or is that um, not necessarily true? Yeah, no, it's it's very competitive. <laughs> Asian elephants are not as competitive as African, I would say. Um, you know, I think there's there's some differences, but no, it's it's very competitive. And if we if you do get the funding, is it difficult to get access to these animals in rich countries, or is it you know once you get the money, it's pretty easy to get to these countries and get um, everything you need to do those that research. <laughs> That's a good one. That goes up and down. <laughs> you know, many of these countries, you know, that you 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 figure it out this year and it works for three, four, five years and then something happens and yeah. I mean, it's good to have not all your eggs in one basket. So you know, I can I can imagine, you know, even though they're a good species to be able to try to fundraise for, I imagine the rage countries they're very political as well to um, be able to um, get access to them. Do you ever run across any problems with that? Is it they're worried about what kind of results that will come back from a study that they allow in their country? Not really. I, it's not at that level. It's more like, um, I think there is, a, there is a bit of a, you know, there's a need of having this kind of work done by range country nationals. So I think there is increasingly a bit of a, reluctance to have foreigners come in and do this kind of stuff. And that's understandable. So like in India, it would be very difficult, much more difficult to do an elephant study in India than in other places. Um, because rightfully, probably the Indians would feel, well, why are the Americans coming here to do this? Why aren't we doing it? It's a little bit like you can think of it like, uh, you know, how would people feel if uh, every Chinese university wants to study grizzlies in, in Glacier National Park, right? <laughs> that wouldn't go over so well in the U.S. And, you know, it just uh, translate that into, into what it might be in, in those countries. And there's, of course, a bit of a, yeah, there's a, there's a, a bit of a injustice there in that we have access to resources that many of the researchers in those countries will never have. Yeah, so so I think that's why we make a point out of it to really work very closely with in-country researchers. That's uh, for our group. That's really generally something we we yeah, it's almost a must uh, if it's possible. Um, you know, but I think that's important to be sensitive about that. Um, you know, it's it's possible. You know, I think the the, the biggest issue is that. Uh, you know, we could definitely, like in all of these conservation fields, the resources are not what they should be. Yeah, yeah not a lot. Even the Asian elephants are an easy species to fundraise for. What you're, what you're able to fund is, uh, can be pretty, it's hard to get people funded. Yeah, so like salaries. It, yeah, it's really hard to get salaries funded and, and graduate students. So it's, it's hard to get that funded too. You can get projects funded much more easily and field costs and that kind of thing. But someone needs to do all that work. The only thing I would ask, I guess, if um, you know, we kind of described our audience a little bit um, to you. Is there any parting words you would like to um, give to this audience to, um, you know, help how we can help what you're trying to do out there? Yeah, I mean, I I think I tried to say it before. I mean, I think to to. You guys are the front line in terms of communicating with the American public about elephants, you know, it's, uh, you know, and it's, I think it's extremely important and it's fantastic work. So 
you know, I think sometimes, uh, as, as, as Brian has expressed it, there seems to be a bit of disconnect, you know, when we don't seem to be working together enough. And I think that's really just a reflection of everyone being extremely busy and working really hard at what they're doing. And it's perhaps just a matter of just reinvigorating that and being conscious about it and doing it, because I think the interest is there on both sides. You know, I mean, we love what you guys do. Um, I, yeah, we'd love for you. We'd love to communicate about our, our stuff. We all care about elephants, right? I mean, that completely unifies us. But that would be really cool. Yeah, I echo that. Just, uh, I think, more communication so we know what, what we know we're all doing and uh, so that we're, we're able to speak more to the work that's going on in range countries. Yeah, I hope we can maybe set up regular meetings just to touch base. I, you know, I think that the geographic distance is always an issue, you know, I mean, that uh, it's really interesting. We have a lot of work going on right now with Maine Wolf, and we have a lot of interaction between scientists and keepers. Uh, we have the species out here in Front Royal. It's easy, right? Uh, you know, it's different than, you know, you have to do that slog down into the city. It's, uh, it's you know, makes it harder, that's for sure. Thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your night to... Oh, that was fun. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Yeah, this is great. I think you guys bring an interesting perspective and it'll be interesting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've had a few people reach out and want to talk about stuff like this. So this is great. Uh, I think it'll be interesting for everyone to listen to. It was certainly yeah, interesting from my perspective. Like I love doing this. Cause, yeah, you know. I agree. Thank you for once again, listening to this edition of Packy Chat. Appreciate you taking the time to listen to us again. Packy Chat's all about just conversation. Take things you heard, uh, things that might work for you, and use them. That's great. Things you don't agree with, well, that's okay, too. We're not here to tell you there's one way to do it. We're just here to start conversation and have some thought. Once again, thanks a lot for listening to Packy Chat. We appreciate you listening. Mm-hmm.